Hello and welcome to the Becker Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC plus the Future of Spine virtual event. My name is Laura Deirda, Editor-in-Chief of Becker Spine Review and Becker's ASC Review, and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Alexander Vaccaro, President of Rothman Orthopedics and Chairman of the Orthopedic Surgery Department at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He is also the co-director of the Spine Surgery Program and uh, the Spine Fellowship Program at Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals. Dr. Vaccaro is as one of the most uh, well-respected leaders in the field and thinkers in spine. It's a pleasure to have you here. Before we begin, could you give us a brief and, and quick overview of where Rothman Orthopedics is today and um, as far as resuming normal operations uh, amid the pandemic? Sure. So from a physical location, we have offices in Southeast Pennsylvania, Southern New Jersey, Mid-New Jersey, Northern New Jersey, Manhattan, Westchester, and we're expanding out to Washington State and Florida. So that's where we stand today. So in the midst of the crisis, I think in the first week of March, when things were looking bad, we as a private practice understood what our revenues were and what our expenses were. So we had to drastically change our business model to preserve capital and cash flow. So we took an aggressive move where we furloughed a large majority of our workforce, and that included physicians, believe it or not. And we did something called restricted duty which means we allowed people if they wanted to take call or do certain things, they could do that. We did all that to decrease our capital requirements and we have now come back. So we, and we're in, we're in three different states. So we had to abide by what the governor said. So in the state of Pennsylvania, he allowed us to start to go back to work on April 27th. Then we had to wait until May uh, 20th, eighth, I think, for New York in Westchester, but New York, Manhattan still said no. And then we had to wait until the first week of June for New Jersey. So we had three different governors, three different set of rules. And we took this strategy that we were going to bring people back depending on the call volumes. We looked at different metrics. We looked at how many new patient calls, how many console calls, how many surgical uh, patients would go back to the operating room. Uh, and had nothing to do with revenue. It just looked at the volume of patients that came through. And then we had to deal with all the patients that were scheduled that were afraid to come back. You know, people missed that point, but they're seeing it now in medicine. Uh, the people we're operating on now are not the people that were scheduled to be operated now. Those people have decided, maybe I'll wait six months to a year until there's a vaccine before I come back. So I think we had about 25 to 30% of those patients not come back. So if you look at the numbers as of last week, we're about 73% of where we were pre-COVID. So that's where it is across the country. If you talk, if I want to talk to my uh, partners in other fields, they're about 25 to 35% down, which is a big problem uh, because the balance sheet has improved with the markets improving except for today. Um, whoever watches this, the market just crashed 1,800 points. So the balance sheet has somewhat, in terms of our investments, improved, but our operating revenue is down. And that's a big problem for us going forward as a private practice. We, we, don't have it. we don't have an endowment. We don't have, you know, bond support. So we have to manage cash flow very carefully. Absolutely. So I can, as you just outlined, there's a ton of things and challenges out there facing um, Rothman as well as really any um, independent groups and orthopedic practices. Operationally, where do you see some of the biggest challenges for you today? Um, what other things are you really looking at that are making it difficult for you to come back in addition to, um, you know, patients 
wanting to reschedule in a, in the, at a point in the future or um, some of the other challenges on the financial side of things? So I'll start from the top. The first, the first headache we have is making sure we have an understanding of federal rules and regulations, state rules and regulations, city rules and regulations, institutional rules and regulations, and then our personal Rothman Institute. So we have, everyone has to be aligned in what we need to do. So if you get all those people aligned, things still don't work out well. I'll give you an example. I've noticed that in my normal surgical schedule, when all the forces are aligned, state says thumbs up, city says thumbs up, hospital's ready to go. We um, test patients 48 hours before a procedure. They go into self-quarantine, and then after surgery, we ask them to quarantine. All that lined up, 20% of patients still, for some reason, drop off the schedule. Now, why do they drop off the schedule? Because of the headaches. They drop off the schedule because, A, they got tested positive for the coronavirus, and they didn't see that coming because they were asymptomatic. Two, the insurance companies have come back, and you would think because of the savings that insurance companies have experienced, they've asked for second opinion, which is so difficult, as you can imagine, getting a second opinion. You can't even get a first opinion. Two, we have really taken advantage of telemedicine, which has been phenomenal, and I'll talk about telemedicine in a second. But the insurance companies have come back and said, you know, this is great, and the patient has a neurologic deficit and they need surgery, but, you know, we don't see anywhere we did a physical examination. And I say, well, well, that's a problem because in telemedicine, I can't reach through my screen and do a physical examination. Well, you know, it's been our policy for the last 10 years we need a physical examination. So with all those headaches together, 20% of our patients drop up, and I'm not reflecting the anxiety patients have going through it. Now, the nice thing about how we've come together as a hospital, as a group, is that we use all the precautions. So patients sign up for an office visit. They're given the option of a telemedicine where they're given the option of an in-person. In-person, the waiting rooms have six feet spacings. Patients come in, check in. They can give their cell phone number so we can text them when they're needed in the examining room so they don't sit around, which is a great thing. Uh, so the, the waiting room virtually has hardly anybody in it. Um, we do a, a full online questionnaire. Have you traveled? Do you have a temperature? Do you feel sick? Have you been exposed to anyone with the virus? And then it's like, they call it the gauntlet. You walk in in different facilities, you have to get your forehead temperature taken, you have to stick your finger in a pulse ox, they ask you questions. I mean, literally it's a gauntlet. And then if you pass all those you know, requirements, then you come in and you see us in the office. You know, it's funny, we connect better face-to-face. -face. I mean, because you know, it's talk to a patient, examine the patient. But I haven't seen a problem getting people to sign up for surgery over telemedicine. And we've written two papers about it also. We looked at patient satisfaction, how satisfied are people, telemedicine versus no telemedicine. And we came up with some findings. The younger the patient, the more satisfied. So if you're over the age of 50, you're not that satisfied because you didn't, you didn't grow up in a world where you're on the internet all the time. Under 50, they love it. I mean, an 18 year old doesn't want to drive into town and wait an hour in someone's waiting room, so they love it. The longer the distance, the more satisfied the patient. And then the last thing is, if there's a series of technical problems, i.e., you ask the person to do the same maneuver over and over again because, you, okay, lift your arm up again. Okay, let's see how strong your arm is. Can you get a carton of milk? Can you lift it up? Drives people crazy. So I'll tell you how we got around that. So the more technical glitches you have with the technology, the less satisfied they are. But with all that said, every week now, I've operated on two or three people that I met for the first time physically in the operating room.
which is surprising. So to go on to how do we get around the telemedicine headaches, which I think is perfect. And I'm going to tell you the problems that we're going to face in the future and why we need to overcome those problems. So we've developed a method of filming our residents and fellows doing maneuvers for a physical examination that self-teaches through YouTube how to do the examination. So if you sign up with an office visit, I say, okay, your office visit is tomorrow. I'm seeing you for neck pain and arm pain. So these are what I want you to do. I want you to lift your arm up like that and, and film yourself. I want you to go like that and film yourself. I want you to move your neck up and down. So, you know, I want you to go get a, you know, bean bag or a thing of coffee. Every nerve has a function. And then I want you to feel your arm, do all that and speak to me as you're doing it. I'll review that before your appointment. So I'll know exactly what your exam is and I'll fine tune it with you in the line. Boom, you've taken out 75% of the headaches of the telemedicine view. And then we've developed a separate kit for more in-depth neurologic examination that has bands and signed filaments. And those are because we do research. So we need to know exactly what a patient's neurologic exam is before they see us. And we could do long track signs and so forth. So that's what we're doing to get around the headaches of telemedicine. Now, I love the 1135 waiver by the federal government. I love it because it says that we don't have to have an actual video image sometimes because sometimes people can't get their video image to work. So what I do is I pull up all their images on a computer and then I talk to them by the telephone. Two, you can use Facebook or you could use Android and communicate. You couldn't do that before the, the federal waiver. And three, anytime they want to review anything, I can review it with them. And we have all these modules. Now, the headache we have is the insurance companies haven't agreed to maintain this type of work model in the future, but we need it. I'll give an example. I'm in, I'm in private practice, but we have an academic model. I spend one day a week traveling for meetings. That's one day away from clinical contact. If I could do telemedicine when I'm sitting in my hotel room about to give my one hour speech and then waste 36 hours on a trip, I can do, I could see 10 people over telemedicine and be productive and be in contact with my patients. And I never have a day off if I don't want to accept it from on vacation. It's phenomenal. I could travel in a car for five hours and do telemedicine as my wife drives if she's, she wants to drive and she loves to drive. So I just love the concept of it and people love it. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, I, I never go to the doctors, but if I had the option of doing telemedicine, reviewing my labs, reviewing my x-rays, looking, because you want to look face to face right in the eyes of the physician. And when they tell you how you're doing, you could always see if you're not doing well by their expression. I want to be able to look at the doctor's expression and see it. And plus they get to know me. So this is, those are the, our biggest challenge going forward after this pandemic is number one, we have to be ready for the second surge in terms of hospital capacity, PPE capacity, uh, ventilator capacity. That has to be, uh, hopefully we're there now. I mean, if, if I'm in my room, I'll just show you. I'm surrounded by N95 masks. They're all over the place. My house has shields in it. I'm ready to go. So that's the first thing. Second thing, we need telemedicine. We, we got to get that working. We got to get it secure. Uh, I got to do it on my phone. I got to take my phone and do it on my phone. And then the third is just people understanding uh, that we're going to get through it. Like, I don't have fear anymore. I, was, I never stopped operating. I was always doing urgent and emergent cases. I was really nervous because I was reading reports out of Italy where orthopedic surgeons were dying, breathing in the, the plume of a bovi smoke. Now, of course, that turned out not to be the case, but that's what they were publishing. 
So I was kind of freaking out like everyone else's, but I, I think I'm much more calm and much more relaxed now and patients are too. And that's where we're at 73%. So was that a long answer to a short question? Oh, that's fantastic. I think it covers all the bases. So it was really helpful for, for us to know and think about. Um, and, and I know that the next thing I was wondering about is what you think the spine field in particular will look like, you know, one year from now, five years from now. Obviously, you just walked through telemedicine, um, you know, more the protective gear and those kinds of things. But is there anything else that you see as being really um, kind of pivoting towards in the spine field in particular? Well, I think we're going to become much more efficient in accessing the appropriate care at the right time. You want every person on your team to live up to the license. And what I mean by that is a medical assistant, a PA, a resident fellow, an attending, a professor, an expert. We all have our abilities and we wanna live up to that. Right now we have clinics that we see, like say one day you see 35, 45 patients and maybe four will need surgery. Well, the best world would be the surgeon sees the surgical patients, the non-operative people see the non-operative patients and those that just need screening for back pain get, get evaluated by the PA. And that's what I think with telemedicine, we can do interviews with patients. So you call up for an, for an appointment and I could sit down and I could talk to you. Well, what's the problem? And I could learn, okay, you just had back pain because you pulled your muscle last Tuesday. You're not driving an hour in to see me and waiting an hour to see the spine surgeon. You're gonna be seeing my physiatrist. So by using technology, we're gonna really go much. So that's how the spine world is gonna change in the future. And we're also gonna learn, and I, I've said this in my career, I could see a patient with a spinal problem. I could talk to you right now and you could say, listen, I have the worst leg pain. It radiates from my buttock into my thigh, into my calf, into my first toe. And then I could look at your MRI scan and I could see you have a disc herniation at the L45 level, which goes to the big toe, it's the L5 nerve root. I believe strongly that 80% of the time I can make a diagnosis appropriately through te telemedicine without ever seeing the patient, watching a patient do their physical examination online. So it's gonna change the world. No longer will we'll have barriers. I don't wanna go downtown to see the city doctor. That doesn't exist anymore. On telemedicine now, because of the 1135 waiver, I'm doing telemedicines with people in different states because there's no state boundary anymore. Now, the second this whole waiver passes, it's against the law to practice medicine in a different state, so I won't be able to do that anymore. But it is phenomenal what we can do with telemedicine. So that's how spine surgery will change. We'll be much more efficient, be less likely to get burnt out, be more resilient because we're doing things we really love to do. I'm, I'm exercising to the level of my license. The PA is doing exactly what he or she wants to do. So that's going to be the change I see in spine surgery. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing all that with us. Um, now I wanted to ask you a, a question about um, value-based care. I know Rothman has been on the forefront of pioneering many things or aspects of value-based care, whether it's looking at some bundle payments or data-driven um, decision-making. So I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on how the pandemic could um, affect those efforts and where you see them headed in the future. So we go through stages. So we were in bundle payments for the last 10 years and we did great. We had shared savings with the insurance company, with the hospital and us. What happens is the rules change every year. The better you get, the more difficult it gets to save money, as you know. So we're now bottomed out. So in the federal government and a lot of their value-based systems, we're actually dropping out a lot of them because we can't get any more efficient. We can get a hip fracture to the operating room within 24 hours and we can get them out of the hospital to a rehab or a home within one or two days. We've done everything. So now what do you do? Now you have to make it better than that and you can't make it better than that. So 
we've looked at everything that we could sort of squeeze out any inefficiencies. So what's the next step? Well, the next step is population-based medicine where you do per patient, uh, per member per month, per member per year, uh, or you manage a group of MSK, musculoskeletal uh, population of a certain area and say, okay, listen, the traditional spend for that region is a dollar. Um, we're going to now do that for 80 cents on a dollar because we're getting together with the radiologist. We're, we're going to decrease unnecessary imaging. We're going to get together with the hospital. We're going to make sure these patients um, leave the hospital in an appropriate amount of time. So those are the big pictures. The low-hanging fruit now is with the technology, with, with telemedicine. As long as all the players are aligned and they say, listen, this telemedicine, you're delivering the same amount of care, the same value of care to patient. So we're going to now share the savings. If they do that, that's a big win for value-based healthcare. If they do what I think they may do, where they say, listen, you know, we paid you a dollar to see the patient in the office. And now that patient's not coming down to see you. The patient's not getting in the car. The patient's not making an effort. And remember, how did insurance companies in the past decrease spend? Well, they make it more difficult for people to access care, such as a copay. I mean, if everything's free, the theory is people will overuse healthcare. Now, telemedicine, I could see the insurance company saying, wow, it's so easy. Maybe they'll make an appointment every day and increase the cost of care. So we have to be aligned with the insurance company. Say, no, no, for the right care at the right time for the right person, but pay us or share the value to the healthcare providers. If they come back and they cut that value in half or 75%, then what's going to happen? Physicians aren't going to use telemedicine and we're going to lose our opportunity for value-based care. So as long as we're aligned and no one over leverages their physician, we can continue to decrease the spend for healthcare. Absolutely. It'll be so interesting to see what happens over the next, you know, three to six months or so, especially. And um, what percentage of chance do you think it is that, you know, the doctors and insurance companies will be able to align and really make this happen and, and productive for, for people? I'm giving it a 25% success rate, and I'll tell you why. Uh, now I'm noticing, now that people are seeing us in the office, I love telehealth. I'm noticing that the patients are coming in more because, I, you know, they probably want to be seen by us. But the insurance companies haven't backed down at all. So what we need to do is we need to have a national referendum. We need it at the, at the federal level first. We need the federal government to say, this has really worked well. And we want to keep it. So we're going to relax some of the HIPAA requirements. And, you know, still protect privacy. But some of the mundane rules, such as you have to be in a physical location separate from your home. You have to go to a place that has a medical care provider there. That's ridiculous. That doesn't even make any sense to me. So get rid of all those crazy rules that exist. Get the state governments to also say, listen, we'll allow you to give this type of advice over state lines, but not this type of advice. Once that goes, we can, we can kill it. But remember, we need the insurance companies. We need the federal government. We need the state government. And then institutions, hospitals are going to say, okay, guys, we're doing it. Oh, but we only get reimbursed 27% of what we got reimbursed before for inpatient. So guess what? We want you to see people in person. See how that works? So we've got a lot of moving parts. So I'm going to give it a 25% success rate until we really pound on all the different players to get where we have to go. Fantastic. That's great insight. Um, my next question here briefly is, um, when you're looking at the technology side of things, what do you think will be essential um, in spine going forward? What technology do you think will be deemed essential and continue to, to thrive? Okay, so I, I have different answers to that. So let's talk about technology first. I think that we talked about telemedicine. I think we need to have functional monitors. If you take your cell phone, it has a gyroscope in it. We can now use, use the cell phone and, and people carry their cell phone 11 to 13 hours a day. 
I can follow the function of my patient after spine surgery to see if they're doing well. If their function drops off, I get an SMS text that tells me there's some, a problem. I need to see that patient sooner. I need to be able to communicate with patients through the cell phone or whatever they want to use. So that type of you know, remote monitoring is so key in the future for spine surgery. Telemedicine is key. And in the operating rooms, I mean, technology is where it's at. We're, we're entering into the age of navigational robotics. So what's the barrier there? And I use robotics all the time. The cost is too expensive. So we have to bring that cost down and we have to streamline it. We have to get rid of the requisite preoperative CAT scans, which cause radiation. Radiation is a bad word nowadays. We've got to get away. We have to be able to download MRIs to correlate to register with the patient. So I think once we get image guidance better, we can now really, really exercise the value proposition of minimally invasive surgery, because we have image guidance where and we can really go places and the companies are moving in that direction. So remote monitoring, telemedicine, navigational robotics, that is the future of technology and spine surgery. Amazing. Yeah, I think, you know, right on track and so many, you know, such interesting things to think about and capabilities we'll have in the future. Uh, my last question here is I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where Rothman is going in the future. I know, you know, before the pandemic hit, there were so many, um, you know, growth, so much growth that you had talked about in terms of, as you mentioned, expanding to Florida and, you know, New York and, and all these different areas. So I was wondering, you know, where you see a, really the next big opportunities to go um, and how, you know, the pandemic might have impacted your initial plans or if you're going forward as you had planned um, before the pandemic. Sure, you would imagine this pandemic would have shut everyone down. And if you see where things are going, people moving away from private practice, they're going to a hospital-based practice, they're joining large uh, multi-specialty groups, they're joining university practices. So we saw that private equity took a bad hit um, because you know, there's a certain amount of leverage on the, on the capital markets. Um, they pay a doctor a lot of money, he joins in, but he's gotta be productive and he's gotta be a return. Well, the pandemic knocked that out. So I think the future is going to be partnerships, partnerships with big hospital systems, academic centers, or insurance companies. I think that so you're going to see partnerships rather than equity buyouts. And they may be designed in a similar way, but, I, but a little bit different. We plan in the Rothman Institute to continue our expansion. When everything collapsed, we continued to grow and to talk because we have a platform that we believe in, a platform on value-based healthcare, on how to deliver efficient care to the population of patients with orthopedic ailments. And we think that's the right model and we're disciplined at it. And the most important thing is we keep on making mistakes and exercising that business philosophy and we learn from our mistakes and we make it better. So it's not like we, we had this genius moment where we said, aha, we know the future of medicine. No, we said, well, this sounds like the right thing to do at the right time. We've done it. It worked 60%, it didn't work 40%. So now we're, we're remodeling. So as we enter into Florida, as we enter into Washington State, as we mature our practice in, in, in New York, we're learning what works well and what works poorly, we're modifying it. But we do know this, everyone needs access to healthcare. So it has to be affordable, it has to be accessible, where you can, like I said, telemedicine. Like I received six phone calls today from, from patients who wanna see me. I said, I will see you today or tomorrow. Everything's gotta be 24 hours. And that's the platform we're bringing and then we have something else that people may or may not like. We have the academic flavor of healthcare. We like to team up with people that have a desire to study and to report and to teach. So in, in our group, we give bonuses at the end of the year and the bonuses favor those who teach, who do um, community work and who publish. And if you're not into that, then the Rothman Institute would not be the right place to join 
because you still do well, but you, you do really well if you teach the community service and if you publish. Got it. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense and, you know, really important to keep all of that stuff into perspective. And I know, um, you know, Rothman's mission has always been served it well and, you know, really been a great place for many surgeons. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Vaccaro. I really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic conversation and, you know, look forward to connecting with you again in the future.